Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to The Political Party, this one featuring Professor Philip Cowley, who's Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University of London, uh, a renowned university for, for politics students. Uh, Philip is also the co-author of a brilliant book called The British General Election of 2017, which I can't recommend highly enough. He's co-authored the last three editions, and they're always regarded as the Bible of, of the last general election. Um, we talk about that book in some detail in this um, interview, and although you get a bit of detail from it, it doesn't really do justice to how brilliant the book is. So um, I loved it, and I'm sure if you enjoy listening to this podcast, it's up your street as well. Uh, firstly, I should say a huge thank you to everyone who came to see me at the Southbank Centre gigs. Absolutely amazing experience to perform there. Um, so thank you all for, for buying tickets. It, it was great to be able to do the show again and fully update it with everything that's uh, been happening in the last few weeks. And as of early next year, I'm on tour around the country. So wherever you live, um, hopefully I'm coming to a town near you. And maybe the tickets would make a, a, a nice Christmas present for someone you know and love. Um, so I am at, from the 1st of February going to Camberley, uh, then to Gloucester, then to Lowry and Salford, uh, the Hazlitt Theatre in Maidstone, North Allerton Forum, uh, Darlington, Barnard Castle, Hexham, Stourbridge, Stafford, Cambridge, Corby, Bristol, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Newcastle, Chorley, and a few more places to be added. I think Leicester as well, as well as a load of London dates. So if you go to my website, mapford.com slash live, obviously I'm just always updating the show because I have to at the moment uh, and because I enjoy um, doing that to keep it ultra topical. Um, so hopefully if I'm coming to a town or city near you next year, uh, buy a ticket and I'll see you there. Uh, for now, I shall leave you in the wonderful hands of Philip Cowley. Delighted to be joined by Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University of London, Philip Cowley. Philip, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, Philip, you're someone I've wanted to interview for a very long time. Um, many years ago, a good friend of mine, Will Sherlock, lent me your uh, book, The Rebels, How Blair Mislaid His Majority. And it was one of the most thrilling political books I've ever read because it contains within it not just great deal on, on uh, how parties managed that well more to the point how Labour managed their, their their parliamentarians during that period but proper old school tales of whips physically grabbing people and arms against, arms at the back and, and against the wall and all that sort of thing um I mean I suppose whipping has changed so much now you don't get that sort of old school whipping anymore but that must have been a great area to write a book about it was and in fact bizarrely the other day I was clearing out my study and I found the photos of the book launch and at the photos of the book launch, about which at the time uh, one journalist said a hand grenade thrown into that room would have removed most of Tony Blair's problems at a, at a you know, <laughs> like that. Uh, 
there was a photo of me, a, a much fatter me, uh, with a, a younger, slightly, uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Wow. Uh, so here was, here was a book about people that cause trouble to people in leadership, and he was grinning immensely. Uh, and when I, when I interviewed him uh, for the book, because um, uh, I interviewed most of the people that were causing Blair trouble, he told me this lovely story. Well, he, he did at least grin. He said he didn't rebel easily. Rebelling was a very difficult thing for him to do. He, he picked his fights very carefully. He only rebelled on issues to do with the economy, uh, issues to do with social justice, and issues to do with foreign policy. And there's a long pause, and I said, but that's, that's almost everything, isn't it? And I, which, which, which he, did then, he did then accept. Um, the, the thing that I was doing, one of the things I was trying to do in that book, and I'm, I mean, I'm glad you think it's thrilling, although I think it probably says more about you than it does about the, the <laughs> book. Yeah, one of the things I was trying to do was talk about how the whips actually work. Now, that book came out in 2005, um, and even then, the sort of old school stuff had kind of diminished. Yeah. Um, the, the grabbing people, there's a story in the book, a famous story about a, a Labour whip called Michael Cox, uh, which he always insisted was spelt uh, you know, <laughs> like, 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 like the apple. But, but he, him, him grabbing... Uh, a young Jack Straw by the testicles and squeezing very hard when oh. when when uh, Straw came in to speak to him and he said I'm not very convinced with Labour's position on this issue and Cox grabbed his nuts and squeezed very tightly and said Are you convinced yet? <laughs> uh, and, and and that st- that stuff had kind of gone even by 2005 and I think it's I think it's reduced even further now. Yes. So um, I mean there was a, there was a book which came out about that time about 2003 or four by a former Conservative Chief Whip Tim Renton. In which he said, you know, if we tried this sort of stuff now, it would be all over the 24-hour media yeah. within minutes of it happening. That's now even more true. It would be all over Twitter, uh, Facebook and stuff. You, you couldn't get away with sort of the, the more physical stuff anymore. No. The, the people who used to be in the whip's office and were former sort of sergeant majors or they'd, you know, they'd, they'd worked in trade unions and they really did know how to, how to break up and <laughs> how to deal with an industrial dispute. These people have sort of gone yeah. and, and politics is a much more visible uh, place now or parliament is a much more visible place. So, so that's sort of gone. What's remained, though, is that this, you know, one of the things that always attracted me to the idea of sort of voting and whipping and so on, is this is sort of politics at its most pure. This is how I get you to do something actually maybe you don't really want to do. That's right. Right. Uh, and what can I use to get you to do something you don't want to do? And that works both ways. So that works from the point of view of the whip, looking at a rebel MP. OK, uh, you don't like this issue, but how do I get you into the lobby to vote for it? What can, what can I give you? either personally or in policy terms, that will get you into that lobby. How can I persuade you? But it also works the other way. I mean, it's also the MP thinking, well, I don't like this. How do I get them to change their view? And that interaction between the sort of rebels uh, and the whips fascinated me almost from the time I started doing this job. Uh, and I did, I, did two, I did two books on Blair's, Blair and Brown, well, no, Blair's rebels and a few articles and stuff. And then I, I kind of got... Although it was fascinating me, I wanted to do other things. I wanted to move on to other projects, but it's a bit like that thing in The Godfather where he says, "Yeah, every time you think you're out, they pull <laughs> they pull you back in." So you kind of can't. You, once you've once you've immersed yourself in this, you can't escape. There is always some big backbench rebellion brewing, yeah. and we're sitting here, sort of you know, days before what could be one of the largest backbench rebellions in history over Theresa May's uh, Brexit deal. So you know, you, you 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 try to move on, but it's just too exciting. And we're seeing when you talk about the um, 
the cajoling and the charming of uh, rebels. John Hayes uh, was offered a knighthood uh, just last week or the week before. Um, so as well as um, stick, there is there is carrots as well. Yeah, there's there's actually remarkably little stick. I mean, that's one of the things that's interesting. You know, they don't have many powers really. They can they can threaten a bit. Um, and certainly, if you're a young MP and you're a bit ambitious, you know, you do know that if you start rebelling on things willy nilly, you are not going to get very very far. I mean, that's, you know. But they almost don't need to tell you that. I mean, most most by the time most people become MPs, they're sufficiently aware of the way patronage works that they work yes. that out for themselves. Um, there isn't a lot else they can threaten you with. Um, and the really interesting thing about John Hayes and his knighthood, which obviously was uh, entirely well deserved and had nothing at all to do with his uh, stance on on uh, the, the prime minister's deal, is that those baubles only get you so far. Um, there aren't that many of them that you can dish out. When you dish them out like that, it does look <laughs> looks rather transparent and obvious. I was trying to explain this to a foreign journalist the other day who just said, well, "Isn't that corruption?" And I sort of "Well, you know, it's a sort of very British, very British corruption." Um, uh, so normally what you have to do is engage in a process of sort of discussion about the policy and maybe give ground on some bits of the policy in order to bring waverers on side or, you know, you give concessions on another bit of legislation and so on. And what's striking about the Brexit deal is that she doesn't have that sort of room mm. for manoeuvre anymore. So um, the very nature of the deal means she can't say, all right, we'll compromise on this or that. So if you think about the really big rebellions under Blair, they were things like the Iraq War or Trident, yeah. the, the real whoppers, where you kind of, you, you can't give concessions. You can't say, well, we'll have, we'll have Trident nuclear weapons, but, you know, we'll only fire them on Tuesdays. Or on Iraq, you know, well, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll get involved, but, you know, we'll do some system of rebates. Yes. But you can do that on domestic stuff. And she's facing the same problem. There's very limited wriggle room in terms of actually what she can give because yes. she then has to go back and agree it with another you know, set of players. Um, which is one of, the, one of the several reasons she's in such trouble over this, I think. So in terms of if you're advising Theresa May on... Ha- <laughs> if, there's a, if there is a theoretical world in which you can get this through... Do you have a view on, uh, I suppose it depends on the individual, doesn't it, that you're trying to whip, but what in general is it is a more effective strategy? Is int- Does intimidation work better than, than treating? Uh, all, all the whips I've spoken to, almost all of the good ones anyway, and, 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 and actually it's worth saying that not everyone is a natural whip. So some people go into the whip's office and don't last very long because it's not for them. You yeah. know, they're, they're, there are certain people who make good whips, and you have to understand, and they all say this, it's a bit like, there's a, there's a line in Jeeves about the personality of the individual in the, one of the Woodhouse books. You have to understand the personality of the individual. So if they are the sort of person that you think you can bully, then you'll bully them, yeah. right? If you know that will be counterproductive, you don't bully them. If they've got an ego, you flatter them. If yeah. they're greedy, you, you push things as much as you can their way. Bluntly, if they've got a, a terribly social climbing husband or wife, you flatter the husband or wife. I mean, you go at them any way you can. Yes. If they're a policy wonk and they're obsessed by the detail of the policy, you sit down with them and you discuss the policy. And some of them, you know, some of them are amenable just to persuasion on the policy. You have to understand the person that you are whipping. Yeah. And if you get that wrong, then you know, all hell breaks loose because there's no point going in and flattering someone who doesn't care about ego. Although the number of MPs who don't have any ego is fairly small, so, so it's usually a, bit, a bit of flattery probably works yeah. with almost everybody. But you know, you so it's it's about and one of the things they try to do on big votes quite early on is you know they try to work out you know, basically how much shit are we in and yeah. with who and map the sort of objections that people have and work out 
both what might move people and occasionally who might be best placed to try to move that yes. person. So they will try to use, I don't know, a minister or someone who has always worked very closely with an MP or someone who's known that person for years. And they will sometimes try to do it in a less obvious way. So, yeah. you know, the MP is sitting down having a cup of tea and someone sits next to them and starts talking to them about the policy. And it, wouldn't it be a shame if we, we got lost? If we, yeah. I think it'd be terrible. I mean, I'm, I'm in tears at night worrying about this. <laughs> aren't, aren't, aren't you? Um, and and those not all of those conversations are happening by chance. Some of them yes. are because they've worked out that that person is particularly amenable to being, is very friends with and amenable to being persuaded by this person. So let's get this person to talk to them rather than hauling them in for a uh, shouting. It's fascinating. I mean, it's the essence of Machiavelli, really, isn't it? It's just good, straightforward, um, sensible politics in that regard, that you manage people according to their personality traits. Yeah, and it's and it's very difficult because one of the thing, one of the problems you've got, although not so much at the moment because everything is Brexit obsessed, but normally you've got multiple conflicts going on at once. So there'll be five or six, you know, controversial bits of legislation going through, and you're trying to weigh off. Well, we've got trouble on this bill and on this bill, and how can we get the person who's causing us trouble on this bill maybe to be quiet on this if we give them something on that? And yes. So, so uh, yeah, I mean, to me, that's always what fascinates me. And and one of the things that really interested me is when the if you think about the the myth of the whips, the myth of the whip is all powerful, all knowing. <laughs> It's all, you know, they, they're, they're really, it's all um, either Machiavelli or, yeah, Francis Urquhart. I mean, yes. much, as I, much as I love House of Cards, both the British version and, to a lesser extent, the US version, uh, it's been absolutely terrible, absolutely <laughs> terrible in trying to persuade people what actually goes on at Westminster, yeah. right? Because it's all about clever wheezes and tricks and skullduggery. And, and there, of course, there is some of that, right? But the reality of most of what they do is much more, you know, it's mundane. It's people management. Yeah. Um, and, and, and one of the reasons that the whips themselves are often not that keen to talk about what they do is that I think if you if you revealed it's a bit like in the Wizard of Oz you know you pull the curtain back and it's just some little bloke you know with the magic yeah with a spreadsheet <laughs> exactly with a with a spreadsheet with loads of red on it looking stressed <laughs> then then the magic goes right, right. and, and so and so they they're very keen to always play up their you know how clever the whips tricks are and stuff. Um, and that, that, you know, that's one of the things that really fascinated me about it. It's such an intriguing part of Parliament and um, such a crucial part in a period when governments have little or no majority. Um, I don't know if you saw James Graham's play This House. I, I did. Great um, play about the, the role of the whips in that sort of mid-70s political and, and, landscape. And, and I annoyed my wife for the entire play by saying, that's, that's, not what, that's not what happened. <laughs> Uh, he didn't look like that. He's too camp. He was a bit camp, but not that camp. That, that doesn't look anything like him. And, and about halfway through, she basically turned to me and said, will you fucking shut up? I was doing the opposite, because I was so enthralled by it. I was, um, when they were going, oh, you know, the uh, minister, the uh, member of Herber Vale, I was going, that's Michael Foot. Sort of ticking him off in my own mind. Um, so we're living in a period now, really, for the first time since that era, and particularly... I mean, literally right now, where the whips play such a crucial role. I mean, on the Brexit vote, and obviously no one knows for sure what's going to happen, I, I suppose we've already covered this, there is so little the whips can actually do to convince people to back a deal on, on something like Brexit, where you say there are, there are the EU27 who are saying that we cannot change the deal. And on top of that, Brexit is such an inflammatory um, issue that in a way it, it trumps party allegiance. It does, and 
so you've got, I mean, you've got multiple things that coalesce to make this absolutely horrific for, for the whips. Um, so uh, no majority uh, on a absolutely fundamental issue to a lot of our own party. It's a sort yeah. of visceral thing. I mean, it's almost, I mean, my, 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 you know, my, my grandparents and my maternal grandparents were born again Christians. So um, when I meet conservative Brexit MPs, I recognize the, you know, they've got they've got religion, right? They've yeah. got religion the way my gran yeah. had it. Um, it on an issue is very difficult to compromise uh, where uh, because she has so little personal authority. Yeah. Uh, as a result of the election and stuff, she can't call in any of those. Yeah. There's none of this. Well, Theresa got you here. Yeah. Type stuff that you. The well, stick with me. Stick, yeah, with exactly. me stick, stick with me, and we'll sort this time. out. Yeah, well, exactly. you know, none of that. None of that works. Uh, in an era where many of them are prepared to go public very quickly. I mean, one many years ago, I think it was when I was doing the Rebels book. A, a Labour special advisor said to me that one of the roles of the Whip's office is to get MPs off a hook onto which they've inserted themselves. Right. <laughs> publicly you you need to come up with an excuse to say look all right you said you'd vote against this to all of your constituents yes here's why you can now go back to them and say with at least a sort of fig leaf of respectability yes. the government have done x and therefore i know i can take myself off this hook yeah the one of the things i know frustrates some of the conservative whips is the willingness with which conservative MPs have been inserting hooks right up themselves <laughs> from a from a very early from a very early part of this process um you know, always, always reveling in it. Yeah. Right? And I am on this hook, right? Yeah. And, and, and it's very hard to get some of these people off off that. Uh, I mean, like most people, I cannot see how when this vote goes before the House of Commons uh, early next week, she wins it or, or gets even close to winning it. And the closeness is really important because if it was at all close, then you could imagine maybe the vote coming back round. And when it yes. comes back round... Pressure really going on to some Tory MPs and and actually some Labour MPs. Yeah. Right? Um, there was a really good quote I read the other day from a Labour MP who basically said, "I I am I would be prepared to d- destroy my entire political career, which is what would happen if they backed Theresa May's deal, in order to get the deal through. I am not prepared to destroy my entire political career in order to ensure that she only loses by fifty as opposed to sixty. Yes. So you have to get it down to look as if it is potentially winnable. And I can't even see that no. at, the, at the moment. So then what happens? So she loses by a, a, a huge margin. It comes back maybe with any tweak or, or some sort of tweak. Well the, then... the thing is that there's two there's, the trouble with that is there's there's at least two potentially intervening stages. I mean I tried the other I tried the other day to do a little flow chart. Yes, uh, of what might happen, and I gave up because it looked like one of those, you know, those in, in cop dramas where they've got the the string all over the wall. Yeah. The lunatic's got the like a the, beautiful mind. Yeah, 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 exactly. It looked like one of those. It was a complete mess. And and actually, whenever I read flowcharts, there's been a few of these in the press recently, and everyone says, "Oh, lovely flowchart that explains what happens." When you look, they've actually left left out three or four potential forks in the road. Yes. So, so when she loses, uh, there's the potential for Labour to put down. A Commons vote of no confidence, uh, and there's the potential for 
there to be an internal vote of yes. no confidence. And there's actually the potential for those two things to be going on simultaneously. Well, that was immensely frustrating about what was happening internally with the Tory party with, with trying to get itself to 48 letters. Was so many commentators thought that was going to be a vote on the floor of the House of Commons and no confidence motion in the Prime Minister rather than an internal Tory party process. Well, it is amazing how many people appear to completely misunderstand these two processes, including many people who should, frankly, know better. There's a, there's a report of the NEC the other day in which Jeremy Corbyn appeared to misunderstand these two processes although I wasn't there so I don't know if it was no. a, I don't know if he did or whether it was just misreported um, but you know I've seen newspaper reporting that's completely mixed up these yeah. things but to make it even more confusing they could happen simultaneously so yeah. you could have the prospect of there being an internal vote of, of you know, Theresa May's party do we want her to carry on or not at the same time as Labour are putting down a, a formal vote and quite how is she supposed to stand up and defend confidence in the government at the same time as her own party are potentially voting to get rid of it? I really do not know so these two things. Now, Labour will only put that down if they think they can win it. And I've noticed that although they've said they are, it is inevitable it will happen, they are still, I think, a little bit wary about saying when they'll do it. Yeah. So it doesn't necessarily have to be the very next day. They may decide that it's better to let the thing go on a bit. Yeah. Um, because if you put it down too early, there's the potential you simply bind together most of her people yeah. against you know against labor and that's the last thing you want to do it you want to do it at the point where you're going to actually bring some of them over and they might actually vote for you or the DUP and it is worth remembering that if there is a vote of no confidence um we don't need any Tory MPs to rebel we just need the DUP to yes. to break the agreement that they signed with the conservatives and 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 that's enough to bring down the government there are so many <clears throat> and so so we have all of that before we have the yes. prospect of maybe a, a slightly revised version coming back for another vote or whatever and and either of those two things or combined could take us into a very different place in terms of picking the moment of uh, of optimum uh, opportunity th- that's a judgment that the labor party ha- has to um, consider it's also one that as yet it seems the rebels in the tory party have have misplayed unless there is this sort of and i got the sense that nadine doris was bluffing heavily to put it politely that they were on 46 and actually this was all a tactical plan to deliberately fall short so that this then drags the process out it does seem from watching them and from their reactions to it that the ERG and, and their other maybe collected allies totally misunderstood how much or more to the point how many Tory MPs were prepared to send in no confidence letters. Yes I think that's right I think I, 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 I mean there's a, there's been a slight attempt to sort of dress this up. I don't think anyone really believes it. I mean, it, was, it seems from the outside it's pretty obvious they just misjudged it. Yeah. Um, but it's worth noting that just because they're struggling to get to 48 doesn't mean that when the vote actually happens, they will necessarily struggle to defeat her because yeah. there's a big chunk of Tory MPs who might well think, OK, uh, I don't want this to happen now, but once it happens, because we only then she's insured for a year against another vote, we have to strike. Right? So... Just because they're struggling to get to the 48, when it happens, we could be in very difficult circumstances. It seems to me the the main thing that will, uh, I think, that at least helps her, and I think it's probably the only thing that is still keeping her in office, is no one else has really come up with a particularly plausible alternative plan. I mean, that's true. That's true of, that's bluntly true of Labour, and it's true of many of the Conservative rebels. And, And at least a plan that you could actually implement by the time that we are about to yeah. leave the EU. And that doesn't necessarily help her in the parliamentary vote, doesn't necessarily help her survive. 
But what is palpable, I think, is talking to so many different people, whether they're Labour, Tory, SNP, Leave, Remain, whatever, is that I think most people who are following this, and that's a, that's a clear caveat, actually think she's done the best she possibly can and that this is an unimprovable deal, given the context. I don't think anyone out there really, truly believes <clears throat> that Jeremy Corbyn, for instance, would be able to improve the deal at all. Um, well, the, the, the opinion polls certainly indicate that. Yeah. The percentage of people who think Jeremy Corbyn would have got a better deal is very small. Um, and uh, I think it is also true that of, pe- of people who are following it and understand the and that, that you know, by following it, I, yeah. I'm, 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 the trouble is, as soon as you say by following it, you have to ask what you mean by that. Yeah. So, I mean, do we mean actually genuinely understand all of the details? In which case, there's like probably about three people in the entire <laughs> country who understand all the details. Yeah. Right? Maybe, maybe, maybe nobody does. Maybe there's, maybe, maybe there's, is, there's yeah. not a single person Huge who gets it all. Right. Um, the number of people who are following it closely, uh, I mean, it's vanishingly small. It yeah. seems to me. But but anyway, of those who are, given the constraints, there is a view that says this isn't. You know, she's done pretty well. I, I, I get that view. There is still another view that says this is a pretty awful deal in other mm. ways, and that. And I thought it was really interesting when um, Sam Gmar resigned uh, last week uh, over over the weekend. I mean, that's that's not a view that is just held by the sort of. Brexit wing of the Conservative Party. I mean, GMAR's objection was, you know, potentially we are going to be in this deal trying to negotiate trade deals with absolutely no leverage, and we are going to get completely hammered during this. And and I thought it was an interesting intervention because it 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 shows that concern about the deal is actually even if people think this might be about as good as you can get, you might still look at it and say, but well, we can't sign up to this. And that then takes you into very interesting territory. This is, I, I fully accept that uh, for the majority of the British public, this is tedious, boring, infuriating, and possibly all in equal measure. But following politics in this way is, for me, a real thrill. And I'm sure it's one you share. What, what made you want to be a political scientist? Uh, well, I don't think anything did. I just, you know, I, 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 I just sort of stumble into things. Um, I always let me let me okay let me go back and tell you how I stumbled into it yeah. and then that might that might sort of answer the question. Uh, I always found politics interesting. Yeah. Uh, in a way that I realised that was a bit weird that lots of people didn't and I did. You know, when you're at school, yes. I mean, I kind of I kind of follow. I find these people on TV interesting. I want so to know more about them. So what sort of age were you and, and who are the people we're talking? Uh, about? We're talking uh, sort of teens. So uh, yeah, Th- uh, Thatcher Pomp. So, yeah, great. So, uh, Pomp of Thatcher, 87, 84, 85, yeah, okay, that so, sort of era. Oh. R- remember Westland. Yeah. Uh, Minor Strike. Uh, remember the minor, you know, all of this sort of stuff. Great. Uh, SDP <clears throat> Liberal Alliance, all of that. So, so I, that, that was my sort of socialisation era. Uh, and it was an era in which everyone said, if only the parties could come together and work together, it'd be much, much better. And then they did come together and work together. Everyone said, why can't they be further apart and presented with the choice? And now they're far apart and they're presented with the choice. In about 10 years, everyone will say, well, why can't they be here? They're yeah. in the middle. Um, but, but that was my sort of socialization period. And, and I, I had a really inspirational history teacher, um, one of those sort of teachers who makes a difference to your, to your life. And uh, she showed me that, the, that history which up until that point had been sort of a bit dull and I hadn't really enjoyed particularly as a subject. Um, history was basically politics and you, yes. could, you, you, you could be 
uh, so reading about Gladstone and Disraeli ceased to be about just these old people. It was about political debate, about how you achieve uh, things. Um, and so I, then I sort of went on and did when I decided to go to university. I decided to do a history degree because I'd loved history and done history A-level. Um, and I ended up sort of by chance doing a history and politics degree and then actually discovering that the politics stuff really interested me as well. But even then, I didn't think I would um, sort of be an academic. I just thought I'd be a teacher. Um, but I had a, again, very good uh, undergraduate uh, tutor who sort of poked me and prodded me and said, Look, you can do some postgraduate Sounds stuff. Sounds like a whip. A bit like a whip, yeah. You can, <laughs> you, can, you, can do some, you can do some postgraduate stuff if you want. And I kind of thought, well, I'll do that for a bit and see, you know, see where it goes. Um, this this did run alongside a realization, I think, uh, probably around that time. Because I was I was I was union pres- student union president when I was at university. Um, uh, again, a bit like a whip, mainly of which was an administrator. I mean, I mainly sort of looked after how how how, how are we losing that much money on the bar and that sort of stuff. And it wasn't really, it didn't so much. And part part of that, and partly in general, I just realized I was. It, there was no, no chance of me actually being a politician. That I would have been a terrible politician. Why? I mean, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just awful. I mean, just awful. I have, I have no self-discipline. Um, uh, I have very little sort of tribal at- attachment. Um, I'm far too gobby and indiscreet. Um, you know, just hopeless. And I, I, so I realise, I realize, and I say all of that with, with great respect for people who are. I also, I think, realised as well, and this, this, this also makes me feel, sound like a complete shit, that I didn't, I didn't really care very much about policy. Yes. I, I like the game. I like yeah. the politics of I it. I love people who admit that. And well, it just makes you sound such a shallow piece of work. No, but that but, is a, that but, is but that's me, right? Yeah. I, mean, I, I kind of, you know, I mean, I, it, policies, policies, obviously, I recognise that it's very important, right? yes. it, it, but it just doesn't float my boat at all. Um, but the game, I yeah. love the game. Yes, yes, yes. And um, so this, these two things sort of coincide. You know, so then you start, start doing postgraduate, and then you publish a bit, and then someone says, "Well, you could do a job here," and you end up, you know. And I've so it combines sort of my. Desire originally maybe to be a teacher a bit, with the beauty of being an observer. I'm I'm able to comment and observe this thing that I find fascinating, without actually having to do it. Um, I mean, in fact, the more I learn about being an MP, the less I would want to be a yes MP. I mean, I, I you know I I would think I would have been a great MP in the 1950s, uh, because they never went back to their constituents. They they sort of they'd they'd go back once or twice. You know, there's a famous story about one of them arriving back at the constituency to be greeted by a you know, brass band playing because it was such a rarity to see the MP in the constituency. Uh, I'd have been brilliant. I'd have swanned around, uh, swanned around Westminster, um, you know, feeling important. For, I wouldn't have achieved very much, but I liked being around. Now that would be awful. I'd have to do surgeries on a Friday and it would yeah. be, be utterly miserable. When I, when I read about it, so I just, I know, and again, I know it's really important, right? I know yeah. it's very, very important, and, but I just look at it and think, God, I'd be hopeless at that. <laughs> I mean, that is the best answer I think we've ever had because we've had a lot of academics on there. <clears throat> and I get the sense with, with some of them... They're all th- full of shit. I mean, th- they're all full of shit. That's what you're saying. They actually... No. They all They all want to sound worthy and important. But actually, I bet I bet most of them just love... Lo- they love the game. Yeah, well, I, the thing is, you can love... I suppose it's... Is, is that all you love? Or do you love... Because... I'm similar to you in that regard, that it is the drama of it all and the intrigue and the and the trickery and the school degree and all that that, I re- that really gets me. But it is also, you know, I come from a Labour background because I genuinely thought the world was unfair and that and that 
fire still burns to, to an extent. So there is still... my fire, If I had a fire, it's long out. <laughs> I mean, I, it's long out. And I probably never had one anyway. I mean, That's I, so I, good know. to hear. I've, more people admitted it. Um, so you're at Queen Mary University of London, which is a, a hotbed, really, of of big political talent, isn't it? There's, um, <laughs> well, I'd, I'd say that we don't. Go on, and flatter my colleagues. Flatter my colleagues. Um, but you've got um, uh, Tim Bale is there. Tim maybe Bale. You, maybe you mean Tim? Yeah. Uh, uh, there's a fascinating uh, young historian called Robert Saunders who's done a brilliant book on the '75 yeah. referendum, which you, you might want to get him in. So you've got Lord Hennessy there, which is huge. I went to a Q&A there that John Rental hosted with Tony Blair. So they get these big figures there, and Gus O'Donnell was there, and it was a great I tell advert you, for the university. I'll tell you the person who um, recently we did um, we do a series of, sort of in-conversation events. And, and after one of them, which was, I think, with Diane Abbott, who was very good before yeah. the election, uh, I asked uh, some of the students, I said, we're a bit light on conservatives. Who would you like to hear? And they all, all said Jacob rees Of course, right? of course, of course. So, the famous so, and event. I, and I am quite happy to say that I, you know, I'd, I'd met him before, but I was kind of slightly sceptical that it would be a good, particularly good event. Uh, but we put it on and we had them queuing outside the door in mm. the rain. Uh, you know, I mean, I've never, we had to put on an overflow hall. Uh, he was... He was great. Yeah, was absolutely he's a great. great guest. And it was the it was the day before one of his events at uh, I think uh, UWE in Bristol was disrupted by protesters. Yes, uh, we didn't have any of that. You had a small protest outside, but but he was he was great. And I, 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 as we did the event, it made me think if he ran for the leadership, which I think is a big if. I don't yeah. think he will. And if he got through to the final two in the Conservative process, which again is a big if, and I don't think he will, uh, he would walk it. Yeah. They they loved him. They absolutely loved him. He was like a sort of pinstripe Corbyn yes. because uh, all the conservative activists who are kind of slightly, you know, it's been a rough time for them recently and, and, and they, they feel they're on the back foot in terms of people making the belief, making the arguments that they, you know, passionately believe. He makes with, he's unashamed, he's an unashamed conservative free marketeer. Um, and uh, it was by far the best event we'd put on over the last couple of years. He's a great guest. He, he speaks with absolute clarity retains uh, impeccable manners, is calm, is reassuring. I mean, the, the impromptu press conference that he gave outside Parliament the other week when they were trying to summon up this 48, it's one of the best press conferences I've ever seen. He's totally at ease. He never stumbles over his words. He's, his thoughts come out fully formed. Um, he's obviously had a lot of practice. But it's still, there are very few political performers at the moment as assured as he is. Yeah. And actually, he's really likable. Uh I, in an old yeah, way. No, no, no. I mean, and personally, whatever, whatever you think about his beliefs, and 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 you know, we got some tough questions from the audience. I mean, personally, very charming and very and very good at dealing with those questions. So people always say, "Well, you should press him on this or press him on that." But he has answers. Yes. I mean, you may not find them convincing, but he doesn't sort of go, "Oh God, yeah, you've got me." Yeah, I hadn't thought about that about my position on abortion. Yeah, yeah, all right, yeah. I mean, he he has thought it through. Yeah. You may you may not agree with him, but he's you know he's a uh, he's a very interesting. Uh, and and what really struck me was just how you know he just drew a crowd in a way that nobody yeah. else had drawn a crowd. What I really like about him is <clears throat> there are certain things you ask him about that the question you just think, well, it's such an absurd scenario that how can he have a decent answer on it? So, for instance, his nanny went canvassing with him in the by-election up in Scotland, and you ask him about it, and the audience laugh, and he says, 
Um, but of course I took Nanny. She's a member of the family. I'm incredibly close to her, and she wanted me to win. You go, oh, God, yeah, of course. Oh, I feel stupid for asking now. You know, the, all these things that sound ludicrous, he can just take the sting out of. He's got a wonderful nanny. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Back for it. Um, so it, just in terms of your um, politics, if, that, if that's the right word, you're dealing with, you know, you're, you're teaching young people at, at, at Queen Mary University. Uh, one of the big campaigns for young people has been votes at 16, um, <laughs> which is... All right, all right, here, the fire's burning again. Well, here yeah, we go. Here we, go. Thing here is, we go. I, I agree with you on it. And I just... The, there's this whole campaign to lower the voting age. And it's not... I just don't really massively see the point, I have to say. Um, and you've been one of the strongest voices against it. I mean, I, I, I just think it's utterly in, intellectually incoherent. Yeah. I mean, I, and, and in fact, the reason I got into because you might say, well, how, how does this rather bizarre obsession with stopping people voting at a younger age sit with my previous claim that you know, I have no belief, I don't really care about policy? Um, and I kind of don't really, bizarrely, having been quite a vocal opponent, I don't really care that much. I mean, when, when, when they do lower the voting age, and they will, I mean, it's coming. Yeah. To which my response is, well, death is coming, but we still put it off for as long as we can. Um, you know, the sky won't fall in. It won't be the end of the world. Yeah. But I got intrigued in it. I got interested in it because I just, you know, I started hearing this case. Oh, at least more than a decade ago now, I'd heard the case for votes of 16. And it just struck me as utterly intellectually incoherent. The arguments that were being made did not stack up. And I kind of got interested because it just seemed such a flawed argument that I couldn't see... Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, if I ever read once more, you know, if you fight for your country, you should have the right to vote. Which I agree with. Obviously, of course, you should, but but you can't. Yeah, uh, you well, can't. This is you know, you, people say smoking. You can't. It's you can't. Eighteen. It's 18. Um, you know, you can, and you can run through a whole series yeah. of these. And and if if you actually look at the age range on some of these things, if anything, they've been going upwards. So yeah. many of the people, for example, who are obsessed by lowering the voting age have raised the age at which you can buy a cigarette or go into a tanning booth or, uh, you know, fight for your country. I mean, you know, it's just, it's just utterly intellectually coherent. The, the public don't really want it. There's very little advantage. Um, the, only, the only reason to have it, I think, is that once we've given the vote to 16-year-olds and once none of this stuff has happened, right, we, st- we don't, it hasn't solved any problem, these people will have to come up with another sort of comfort blanket yeah. that they can cling to whenever they're asked about how do we involve young people in Votes at 15. Uh, well, well most, inter- interestingly, most of the arguments for Votes at 16, when, when, you, when you try and argue against it, yeah. uh, and I've done quite a lot of these, so I often get invited <laughs> on, onto... So what happens is you get invited onto like, uh, some um, politics pa- panel, some programme. Some Tim Pop podcast. Or some Tim Pop <laughs> podcast. But you're always stuck up against some incredibly articulate 16-year-old. And yeah. you're basically made to feel a heel, right? You're because you are you are you're basically it's like that Mitchell and Webb sketch, are you the baddies? I mean yeah, you, yeah, yeah. I, I am the baddie against this incredibly clever, articulate, passionate seventeen year old. And I have to tell him or her why they shouldn't have the vote. And you come away, you feel like a shit. You know, I mean you But and I and, and the same thing, I've been asked, you know, if, when you were 17, would you have wanted the vote? And I'm sure the answer to that is yes. I mean, I would have been, I'd have been a, just the same sort of person, right? 
But doing anything based on the teenage me is a really bad idea. Yeah. Right? I mean, I, that was <laughs> bonkers. And, and I would go further. I mean, so I, I suspect that at 15, I would have thought, well, I should have the phone. I know, I know more about it than, you know, some of these people I meet. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's the problem that the arguments, the arguments that say, which say it should be at 16 could equally apply in many cases to 15 year olds or 14 year olds. Yeah. And you don't necessarily get to vote at 18. It depends when the election falls after your birthday. Well, it does. Although bear in mind, because I often hear this as well, that people say, oh, well, you might have to wait till you're 21 or 22. Yeah. And therefore, if we lower it to 16, you'll only have to wait till you're sort of 20. But we have things called local elections. We had we had things called European elections. If you live in London or Scotland or Wales, you have elections there as well. It's not all about Westminster, yes. right? And so you probably don't have to wait unless you're really unlucky. You don't have to wait more than a couple of years to to exercise the franchise. My first vote I cast was in a you know sort of local election in which my father was standing from my embarrassment, you know. And which party was he standing for? Oh no, independent. It was all the parish council. And whereabouts was this? In Bristol, outside of Bristol. And I was deeply embarrassed. And I remember, because I was a teenager, and I remember saying, you, you are not to put any photos of, like, me anywhere near your <laughs> election literature. And what were, what were his policies? What was his sort of uh, ideology at the time? It's a parish council election in a village, right? Yeah. It was about... It was like it was a bit like Royston Vasey. It was it was like you know, <laughs> uh, we will we will do nice things for local people a in local our local village. Local yeah, people. yeah. Um, so I mean, j- just on the votes at sixteen thing, one of the, the issues I have it with it is this idea that it will um, you know it will start a fire. You know that, that young people become uh, politically engaged. The problem is that hasn't worked with eighteen year olds for God knows how long. Well, when the voting age was lowered from twenty one to eighteen. Yeah. That was what one of the justifications for doing it was that these people will get, you know, the yeah. massive wave of enthusiasm, which never materialised. Now, the advocates of votes at 16 do make the point, and I think it's a, it is a fair point, that 16 to 17-year-olds are, are a more captive audience than 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds. I mean, the, in some ways, 18, 19, 20 is a terrible age at which to enfranchise people because they're about the most mobile uh, group of public you will ever encounter. I mean, they're, yeah. they're, they're, you know, they've left school, they're young, they've got disposable income, most of them. Um, they're not at home, they're not living with their parents, they're not in school. Um, it's one reason they're actually quite difficult for political parties to reach as yes. well, whereas 16 and 17 are, are easier to, to reach. Um, but, I, you know, I, I find these sort of arguments, that, you know, I mean, people look at Scotland and say, well, if you look, look, if you look in Scotland, the, um, the turnout amongst uh, 16 and 17 year olds in the referendum for example was was, was high yeah in the referendum uh, but it was in the referendum it was in one of the most atypical political yes. events it was high, know, in every group. high in every group right and so sure it was high amongst this yeah. the, the, the very young given the vote in a normal run-of-the-mill uh yeah, election a general election of which we could be about to have a six in the next two years um i very much please god no but uh, you know shoot me now but um you know, I suspect turnout will be a lot less impressive. And also, we shouldn't forget that, and Scotland's a good example of this, and, and as is the Labour position, is people only want votes for 16-year-olds because they think they'll vote for them. Oh, the partisan advantage, I mean, is, is obvious. But then most, to be fair, most discussions of the franchise going back 150 years have been have been overlaid with discussions of... It would be a miracle if discussions of vote 16 did not have a really clear, obvious partisan element to it, because most of these discussions do. But what is what is great is that often when franchises extended, it doesn't always benefit the oh, party. Oh, indeed, as, as, as it the did... The Great Reform Act. As it, as it didn't for Labour in 1970. That's right. Uh, and so, you know, be careful what you wish for. That's right. 1832 is sort of burned 
for my A-level syllabus uh, as, as a real lesson in giving people the vote doesn't mean they'll use it to vote for you. Uh, it's uh, always worth bearing in mind. We should talk about your book that is out now, uh, The British General Election of 2017, uh, done by you and Dennis Kavanagh, which is, uh, as the uh, as David Dunbury says on the front, the Bible of general elections. And this is a series that Polgrave Macmillan have been doing... Oh, for God knows how long. Oh, well, since 45. So, the fir- the fir- so this is in a grand it is. history. It's, it's the longest-running national election series in the world. So there's been one on every election since 1945. Uh, the, the reason the title is so boring, the British general election of 2017, is because that's what everyone has been called. And it's the easiest bit of editing you do. You just you get the prelim bit up and you delete 2010, insert 2015, insert 2017. And I, I've done the last three, so 10, 15 and 17. And in terms of how it works as a process, um, how much of it do you write yourself? Because there are other people involved in it, people like Wes Ball and Arna Menon and, and various others. Um, are you, do you basically edit it? Or is this... Uh, uh, the, do you the, write most of the, it? The majority of it is written by me and Dennis. Wow. Uh, and then there are... But there are then specialist chapters where it's, it's easier to get someone in who knows you know, the area and can write. So the chapters on the media on Brexit, on candidates and so on. We we get the people in to, to, to write those. And then we edit those and we try as best we can to integrate what they've written with what we've written, which doesn't always work, but, you know, on the, on the whole does. But it's about 200,000 words long. And I think Dennis and I wrote 120,000 or something like that of that. Wow. I mean, it's such a good book. I mean, it's right up my... Anything that explains why things happen. I mean, obviously with these things is you're coming out... Firstly, politics has changed so quickly at the moment. Uh, it's very volatile. But secondly, so much has happened since the election that you're... Is there a danger when you're publishing these things? I suppose there's enough of a reputation around the brand for it to be fine. But you're publishing a book about something that happened last year and in a fast-changing landscape, it can feel maybe dated. I, I think um, uh, that is definitely an issue. Um, I mean, this one took longer to write than most. Most of the others have been published in the same year that the election was in, which is normally possible. Um, this one was tougher. It was tougher for loads of reasons. And we we made a decision fairly early on that we weren't going to try and rush it through. Yes. That it was we were we were okay with sort of letting it breathe and coming out after. Um, I see it as a bit like this sort of origin story. You know, you know in superhero, <laughs> this is this is this is why Batman we begins. are. This yeah, is yeah. this is the beginning. This is why we are here, where we are now. Um, but it, so, so it is true that you can that the, the time may, maybe things change a lot. And I was desperate to get out before the next election. I was, was always my one real worry was that I'd still be we'd still be doing it and there'd be another yeah. election. Um, on the other hand, the passage of time gives you that little bit more room to yes. actually to place it in a bit of context. Yes. Um, and one of the chapters is the election in retrospect, which actually is one of my favourite bits, because it is that time and that distance just to let everything settle probably gives you a better view of actually what happened. Yeah, I think so. And also some stuff comes out later. So there's, there's things like, the I don't know, election expenses. Uh, had we rushed it out, we wouldn't have got some of that. There's some polling evidence that came out quite late, which we were able to incorporate. There's, there's, and, and this is a good thing. There's lots of other competitor books out there. So we were able also to use things that were in some of these other books great um i mean if, if you like elections then obviously I, I would love it if you went and bought our book but there are another four or five really good i mean really good books on the election out there and um we try to come in as best we can sort of you know at the end like the final word yeah. um 
but it's, it's for other people to say whether we, we manage that it's or not. It's brilliant. It's such a good read. And there's so many brilliant... I love the way it's broken down. I mean, it covers basically everything. Brexit, um, the media, polling, all these different um, aspects. I suppose whenever you're making something like this, you have to decide what to cut as well as what to put in. Were there any things that you left out that, you know, if you were to be able to do a kind of extended version, you'd put back in? Um, there are things which I think... Uh, well, you definitely have to cut stuff. So we, I mean, it could easily have been double the length, but then there's the, I mean, no one would read it. So you're all, oh, you're, you're, well, yeah, okay. Uh, again, as, as, as earlier, that says that says more about yeah. you than, uh, than about the book. I mean, I, um, there are things, I don't know if there's things that we, we'd cut that I'd like to put back in, because I think on the whole, we made the right cuts. There are things which I think we don't really get right on top of where I suspect more is to come out later so I'll give you a couple of examples I think and we we do note this in the book I think there is more to come out about what happened on election night uh, around Theresa May um, how close she came to resigning uh, or not on election night uh, all officially denied and so on but I suspect at some point in the future when the memoirs are written there'll be a bit more on that I'm pretty certain there's more to come out on uh, the Corbyn team and wobbles within the Corbyn team over the two years leading up to this, and particularly wobbles that Jeremy Corbyn himself may have had. Again, we we briefly cover some of this stuff, um, but I th- you know I think probably once it's all over, there will be more revelations about some of that. We don't cover, and it, it, it intrigues me this one. Everyone goes on about Russian interference in elections. Almost nobody talks about potential mm. Russian interference in the election in twenty seventeen. Um, and uh, I would kind of like later, and I think it's, there's no point doing it now because we don't really know, but given that we think the Russians have attempted to intervene in most elections yeah. in Western Europe, over including, the last few our years, referendum. including the referendum, I mean, you don't, you, you, to say this is not to say the Russians determined the result or were politically significant, but we know that we know they tried to inter- yeah. intervene. Why do we think they didn't intervene in 2017? Yes. And if, you know, if so, why not? Um, I think there was also more to come out on Diane Abbott um, and the rather uh, peculiar circumstances by which she ceased to be Shadow Foreign Secretary, uh, Shadow Home Secretary, the day before the election. So there are there are things which I think we will know find more out yeah. about over the coming years. Um, uh, and at times we we had to also make we had to make strategic decisions as well occasionally about you know things that had been covered in other books. So uh, one of the there's there's a great there's loads of stories about Theresa May's two main aides Nick Timothy and Fiona Fiona Hill, um, who were um, uh, divisive characters. I think that's a polite way (laughs) of putting it amongst some of the people they worked with. Um, You know, we 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 say all of that and we cover them, but you know, a lot of the details of some of their behaviour is covered in other books and we kind of felt that they've been it's been done we can just sort of nod to it and move on and try and discuss yeah. other things um so yeah you could be but you could easily write another 100 200,000 words if you had the time in terms of the things that influence the election because what's remarkable about it and the concept of these conversations with people is it's obviously been seen as a brexit election in retrospect and that's partly because of the, the way that labor's vote um increased but at the start of that campaign, whatever people felt about Brexit was slightly separate. The British public, if the polling is to be believed, and I think actually probably were, prepared to give Theresa May around a 100-seat majority 
at the start of the campaign. So even though it's it kind of it looks like it, it's now accepted as a, almost an inevitable result, actually things did change during that campaign, which we're always told never happens. How much? I mean, I suppose this is the the, the, the point of the book, but um, how much is that entirely down? to the way Theresa May personally handled the campaign, i.e. hid away, and had she actually gone out there and explained in the way that she's doing now with Brexit, she's shown that she can get a certain level of traction with the public, and had she faced Corbyn in debates, maybe it wouldn't have been the way. Um, so that's one question. And then I suppose the second question is, how much of Labour's vote really is to do with Brexit? Because there's so many books. Uh, Lewis Goodall's brilliant book, um, Left for Dead, many other books talk about the fact that well, Brexit is the reason that Corbyn did so well. Um, well, let, okay. Well, so let, let me, let me, yeah. Let me. Okay. So, so on the on the Brexit issue, um, and the, the, I suppose these two questions are in some ways linked. Um, there is a massive sort of shift in voting intentions between the fifteen election and the seventeen election, and and the driver of that shift is Brexit. I mean, it's it's one of the reasons that age profile that everyone now talks about has become so stark. Age, age didn't. I mean, age has always slightly divided the the, the, the parties in their t- terms of their support. Yeah, but it's you know it's basically one of the biggest divides now, demographically between the the parties, and that's driven by Brexit, and the extent to which people who had voted for David Cameron's Conservative Party in fifteen were prepared to vote for Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. I mean, not, not, yeah, just, yeah, not, yeah, just, yeah. not just not just a Labour Party, but they yeah. were voting for Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Night's Party. Speech. Two years later yeah. is driven by Brexit. Right? So so Brexit, I mean, we, we discussed this at one point, you know, is it a Brexit election, is it not? And the answer to that depends entirely on what, what characteristics you are choosing to, to measure and test by. But there is no doubt that it is one of the principal drivers of the, the vote and the shift in vote between 15 and 17. Issue of whether May could have won a majority or not won a majority. I mean, it seems to me this is not just about Theresa May. It's about a combination of Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour campaign. So there is no doubt that Theresa May was a suboptimal campaigner. I mean, her team talk about sort of head in the hands moments repeatedly during the election. Um, They think some of her team think they just ran the wrong type of campaign, that she was not suited to what was Linton Crosby's uh, idea, this sort of very presidential majoring on Brexit, just repeating these phrases, that she should have run a much more low profile, less presidential, more collegiate campaign, which focused on more than Brexit. It would have have talked about Brexit, but it would have been more than that. And and in the book, we we give the um, uh, details of the speech which one of her aides had written for her to give when launching the election, which is very different from the speech she did actually give. So the speech she actually gives talk, you know, this strong and stable phrase repeatedly. That wasn't in the draft that one of her aides wrote for her. That was a speech which talked about the challenges facing Britain in addition to Brexit. So it's true that Theresa May's terrible, it's true the Tory manifesto you know imploded and all of that sort of stuff. But it is also true both that Jeremy Corbyn uh, proved to be a much better campaigner than many people had thought. And that, and this is the bit I think is often missed, and that the Labour Party was prepared to gamble repeatedly during the campaign. Now, almost all of those gambles came off, um, but they were still gambles. So things like Jeremy Corbyn taking part in the leaders' debate, yeah. 
that was not decided in advance. That was decided right, right, very close to the it taking place. And there were people around him, including some of his own personal closest aides, who did not want him to do it because they thought it was a risk. They thought it could yeah. go wrong. And other people said, "Look, we have to. We've done really well. We've got to. We've got to keep yes. rolling the dice." Uh, after the Manchester bombing attack, uh, which. Again, at the time, many people thought, insofar as they wanted to think about the political consequences of such a terrible thing, they thought this would benefit the Conservatives' party yes. because it would strength. It would all be about security and Corbyn and his yeah. links with groups in the past, etc., etc., etc. Labour did not just sit back; they came out and Corbyn gave a speech about foreign policy and the links between Manchester and British foreign policy. That could easily have backfired. Yeah. Uh, it was another gamble, and it but it paid off. It put the Conservatives on the back foot, and the same happened after London, uh, London Bridge, um, or even the decision to publish uh, spending um, uh, figures uh, to pretend, and it was a pretense we revealed in the book that Labour's manifesto was in quotes fully costed. <laughs> uh, you know, it was quite how that. I mean, the fact that they got away with it tells you a lot about the quality of the, ca- the Conservative campaign. But they, but but again, that there was a really big internal debate about whether you should do this, and McDonnell in particular was very adamant that they needed to, to to. But again, it was a gamble; it could easily have backfired. So Labour throughout the campaign, Labour, you know, they roll the dice, and each time these gambles come off. And I think so. It's not just enough to say oh, Theresa May threw the majority away. Um, it's a combination of her underperforming and Labour and Jeremy Corbyn overperforming. I suppose one of the big questions coming out of any general election, and particularly at a time as volatile as this is, what does it tell us about what happens next time? Well, one of the really interesting things, of course, in 2017 was how everyone thought the election in 17 would be fought by the rule book of 15 uh, and then were confounded. Uh, so I think one of the issues that we should be really careful about is assuming that the same things will happen in yeah. 19 or 20 or 21. And, and having just finished this, Damn thing. I mean, uh, twenty twenty-two. Dubai, Dubai, Dubai. Dubai. I mean, uh, just just because I hated writing it doesn't mean you'll hate reading it. That's that's my. Um, uh, That'd be a great quote on the front. Yeah. Of um, yeah. The publishers might not go with that. One. Um, uh, one. So I think you have to be very careful assuming the same things will happen yes. next time. Um, the only thing where actually I, do, I think does transfer across because I think it was a, a fundamental mistake people made in, in 2017 and we had no excuse for making it was to underestimate the volatility of the electorate. Yes. Uh, and the reason we had no excuse for making it was that in 2010, just seven years before, during the campaign, the Liberal Democrats had gone from third place to first place. I mean, it was quite astonishing transformation. Now, of course, as we know, they then slipped away again by the time the the, uh, votes were actually cast. But in the campaign, the events of the campaign and the volatility of the the electorate meant that you you could go from third place to first place. Um, And then, in fact, that shift from the Liberal Democrats' low point in that campaign to the Lib Dems' high point is actually higher than the shift that Labour achieved in 2017. So we we should have noticed this. We kind of forgot about it. Um, whatever poll numbers we go into in the next election, we should not assume they will stay the same during the campaign. The, ca- the campaign in 2017 mattered in a way probably most post-war campaigns have not mattered. Uh, and so if we can read across, that would be one of my read across. And what are the main reasons for the volatility? I mean, obviously, Brexit was a sort of self-inflicted volatility, but the uh, 2015 election obviously predated that. Uh, UKIP did very well in 2014, but they were, you know, it's low turnout European elections. Is it all to do with post-crash economics? 
No, I don't think it is. I mean, I think it's been coming for a while. I mean, we, we just don't do not, we do not have the same attachments to p- political parties that we used to have. I mean, there's loads of evidence. We've, been, we've, we've known this for like sort of 40, 50 years. Um, and that's becoming weaker and weaker and weaker. And, people, and, and the switching between the parties at elections has, with, with I think one exception, been growing election on election since 1964. So we're just more willing to switch parties. We, we're, not, we're less tribal than we used to be. Um, and, th- and I think Brexit maybe imposes a sort of slightly false... Um, so one, one of the things we talk about in the book is lots of people talk about the return of two-party politics in this election because yeah. both Labour and Conservative votes go up, which is in a very unusual way. Um, you know, people talk about the great increase in Labour's vote, but the, the Tory increase in its vote on its own would, was a record-breaking yes, increase. five points for, for, a, for, a, for, a, for a government party. Uh, it's the it was the best increase since you mentioned 1832 already. I'm yeah. going to mention 1832 again. It was the best increase in a governing party, incumbent party running since 1832. I mean, quite a remarkable achievement. Um, but this is a sort of it's a you know, it's a fake two-party. Yes. I mean, leave aside Scotland and leave aside Northern Ireland, even in England and Wales, this is a fake two party. We, we do not have those sort of class and uh, partisan attachments to the parties that we had in the 60s and 50s when we used to have two party politics. And I think it potentially could go as quickly as it's come and, and other parties could surge. And to, but don't, don't ask me to predict which ones and when. But I just think there's no certainty about these two blocks of votes remaining. One of the big uh, factors or one of the big discussion points in previous elections has been the role of the media, the idea that the somewhat won it in 92 and uh, people claim in 97. Although I think that's uh, less um, less easy to suggest. I've always been very cynical about the, the influence that the media have. I mean, we're living in a period now of declining circulations of new media. Um, are the media the, the least influential they've ever been? Oh, I think that that's almost certainly that. Yes, that's the easy question to answer is, yeah. uh, are they less? Is the mass media less influential now than ever before? And they, yes, clearly. I think a trickier question is risk, which we still haven't really got the answer to, is to balance up the importance of social media against the mass media, because, yeah. um, you know, and we're seeing a nice natural experiment in this at the moment because the the, the Daily Mail has shifted its position under a new editor has shifted its position really quite dramatically on Brexit, and it'd be really interesting to see yes. whether male readers follow the paper or whether male readers bluntly leave the paper and go elsewhere, I mean, and whether is, they're as vigorous about being pro-European yes, as they were. I mean, yeah, the and, and sometimes these things can work. Yeah, that's the other issue that sometimes these things work in this slightly more nuanced way, so that so that people don't shift position, but they become weaker or stronger in mm. their position. Um, uh, so we, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the challenge of social media and, uh, reporting social media fairly, but without falling for some of the hype, I think has been one of the, one of the sort of intellectual struggles we dealt with when we were writing this. Because one of the ironies of the rise of new media is that it doesn't correct any of the problems with old media. It's just a new format for propaganda distortion. Well, I, 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 yeah, without trying to be too partisan about it, I'm, I'm amazed how many people always used to complain about the Daily Mail and, and the Sun. And what they really have been saying all along is they just wanted their own Daily Mail <laughs> That's or right, Sun. Yeah. Right? They wanted a left-wing version of this that was just as partisan. And spurious and just as spurious and aggressive, right? Um, they just they were on the moral high ground about how terrible these right wing papers are. They just wanted a left wing version that yeah. they could they could cling to, and that's you know in some cases that's clearly what they've got. Do you take any value judgment on whether new media is more or less reliable than traditional? 
we don't. And um, I mean, my 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 gut feeling is it's less, but I have no evidence for for that. Um, I mean, I, I do what I do. What I think is interesting, and in fact, you saw this even in 2015, is the way in which social media can counteract uh, inaccurate information in the mainstream press and can work to sort of head off stories. Yes, and there's a speed to it. Uh, uh, sort of speeding up of politics, which is definitely true. So the news cycle, the sort of old 24-hour news cycle, has kind of gone. You can, you can, and it can intervene. You can use social media to head off stories in a way that uh, wasn't true, you know, five, ten years ago. Um, and that, you know, in some way, I guess that's good. Um, but whether in general it's more or less inaccurate, I don't know. I suppose in a way the speed is both a great strength and a weakness, isn't it? Because it means that um, misinformation can spread exceptionally quickly now. Oh, yes. Um, uh, uh, And in fact, one of the lovely claims about the last election, which as far as we can see came entirely from social media, is the belief that over 70% of 18 to 24-year-olds voted. Wow. Um, This this claim circulated on election nights all over the place. Yeah. there's absolutely no evidence for it at all. No. Um, so, uh, and it, but it helps it help feed this argument about the sort of youth quake, yeah. um, uh, which when you then go and probe in a bit detail, a bit more detail, I mean, there clearly was an important age effect in the election, but there was the one thing there wasn't was a youth quake. No, and there's a difference between more young people voting and young people changing their voting intentions. Yeah, and the, the latter happened. The latter yeah. definitely happened. The evidence for the former... Uh, I mean, on the on the whole, we come down on the fact that youth turnout probably did increase a bit, yeah. but only a bit, and it depends which measure you are using. On at least one measure, youth turnout actually fell at the last election. Although I'm slightly I'm slightly skeptical about that claim. But um, what did happen was they switched their votes. The, the other thing about the youth youthquake, just to digress slightly, is that I think it's focusing on the wrong people. And if you want to explain the last election and explain problems the Conservative Party have got in elections going forward. I wouldn't focus on 18 to 24-year-olds. I would look at people aged 28 or 32 mm. or 37 or 44. All of those ages, you are more likely to vote Labour than Conservative yeah. at the moment. Um, and these are not... So it's not about student fees or any you know, sort of youth-related issues. Yeah. It's about people struggling to get housing. homes, housing, yeah. problems with schools for their kids, uh, and so on. And those issues, uh, you know... If you want to tackle issues, that's that's the age group you should you should be focusing on if you're a conservative. So there you go. Ironically, we've ended on a policy note. Bollocks. <laughs> Philip, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you very much for having me. Philip Cowley, what an amazing guest. Follow him on Twitter at Philip J Cowley. Always worth checking his Twitter feed, particularly when you have the parliamentary machinations going on, as you do now, um, because it just gives you such a good insight into what's happening behind the scenes a lot of the time. Uh, and his take on politics is always very refreshing and unique. Um, now, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Many of you do. Thank you for all of your lovely messages. They all help make this show worthwhile. Some people suggest guests, which is very helpful. Uh, And if you uh, know someone who uh, would be a good guest, by all means, uh, suggest it. If you work for them, that's handy. If you are them, that's even more helpful. So do get in touch. Um, Ian Forbes, to be fair to him, it was a PS. So he'd he'd, he'd written about uh, other things. He said, have you ever thought about getting David Icon? Um, 
I'd never thought of it until that point, Ian, to be honest, and I still don't think it's necessarily a good idea because um, I think he slightly sits out of this world, so it would be slightly gratuitous to have him on. But I wonder what people think. Should I try and approach David Icke, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com? Obviously, it's always nice to know where people listen. I just think because when I listen to podcasts that I like, I often have them on when I'm cooking, like I'll save them. I think, well, I won't waste that on a on a commute. I'll, ha- I'll listen to music on the commute and then I'll have the podcast on it. All the other way around, I'll be like, well, that podcast will get me through that trip to uh, wherever. And, of course, don't forget, later in the year, I uh, will be going to wherever up and down the country. Uh, as I mentioned before, a, a whole host of places um, from February. Uh, maybe it's near you. Camberley, Gloucester, Salford, Maidstone, North Allerton, Darlington, Barnard Castle, Hexham. Starbridge, Stafford, Cambridge, Corby, Bristol, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Newcastle, Chorley. Oh, my word. Help me out. Buy a ticket. Um, it'll be my brand new show, Brexit Through the Gift Shop, which I will be fully updating as we go along. So uh, the the show will change as the tour develops. Um, but it's always nice to know where people listen. And um, Gary Fantana says he listens at work but doesn't get much stuff done while while he is. I suppose it would depend on what sort of job you're doing, really. Um, I wonder if any MPs listen to this during parliamentary debates. Probably not, but who knows. Have you ever seen them with an earpiece in? Earpiece? Headphone. I'm starting to sound like a conspiracy theorist. Um, so do get in touch because the emails are always um, always a pleasure to read and sometimes contain very good suggestions so politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com there are just two live shows left before Christmas and what amazing lineups they are I can't wait for them on the 19th of December Jess Phillips and Sarah Wollaston and on the 20th of December Alistair Campbell and Nick Bowles if you've been before you'll know it's a great way to, to end the year and usher Christmas in it's always very festive live music from MP4 they're slightly more raucous than the other Palace gigs um, and tickets are available at the Leicester Square Theatre website or you can go through my website mattford.com slash live I'll see you in about a week thanks as always for downloading and as as I always ask if you could share this spread the word tell your friends tell your family and leave a, an iTunes review it all just helps other people find it ta very much bye <laughs>